Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If your husband has asked you to work outside the home, don't quit. If the two of you talk about it, and he makes a decision that he wants more of a wife by you being at home, then quit. But he's in charge of your work. And all you women pray for us when we have men's meetings. Because we show the husbands graphically that if they ask for everything from their wives, they will stretch their wives out of proportion and they will not be able to do everything because they can't do everything. You can't expect your wife to work 40 or 50 hours a week away from the home and be the mother and lover and wife and domestic queen and chauffeur and all the other and church servant that she otherwise could be. They are, they are weighty decisions, but it's up to your husband. I wasn't telling women to go against their husbands in quitting their jobs. That's a sphere of authority and another sphere of authority that bounces against each other. And so it's got to be weighed very carefully with a wife that is working that she not let that job, which we, you know, we teach a strong work ethic. And teaching that strong work ethic could make the job out of proportion in her life when she could reduce her commitment to it, though keeping up the hours and come home and still remember, I'm a wife first, and therefore, though I'm tired, I'm going to give him my best. Women on the job, you should remember that though you might work for a male boss, you might be a nurse helping a doctor, you might be a secretary helping an administrator, any compliments or praise or rewards that come from your boss are nothing in comparison to your man at home. If your man at home is quiet and reserved and doesn't give you as much praise or reward as he possibly could, you still obey him fully. But remember that what is said in the job does not, should not move you at all. You want the praise of God and your husband. The virtuous woman waited for Proverbs 31, 28. Her husband or children would rise up and call her blessed. What's important to you is that you end up your life with the epitaph, a daughter of Sarah a princess in diamond with God, and you don't get that by hardly even listening to anything that happens at work. Turn to Leviticus 27. Turn to Leviticus 27. When we look at the Bible about the wife's submission to her husband, we want to do it thoroughly, and we want to let the Word of God speak to us in all the different ways that it can. When we looked at the authority of civil rulers, we did that. When I preached through Romans 13, we took great pains to do that. When I have preached on a Christian work ethic, and when we preached at men's meetings getting ahead on the job, we were very detailed about looking at all everything that the Bible teaches about submitting to our bosses on the job. We want to be as thorough here. I'm not digging for little whips for any woman. I just want the whole counsel of God to come to us with force. The Bible has this whole string of passages that I took you on a survey of from Genesis 2.18 to 1 Peter 3, 1-6. through 6. We took a survey of all of them where it plainly says she was created for the man, she was to be his helper, she's under his rule, her desires are given up to him, he's her head, 
Christ is His head. She's to submit. She's to submit in all things. She's to be in subjection. She's to reverence her husband. That is one category of evidence from the Bible. And it was long, and I took you through all of them. Then I gave you another category of information from the Bible where God makes differences between men and women in their anatomy, in His rules for them, in jealousy, and that list of things. That's another category of Scripture. And I want to add one to it right now that I intended to have in my outline, but a good brother in this church, and I love thinking brothers that know the Word of God and will tell me, I want to remind you of Leviticus 27. This was when a man was going to make a vow to God for his family, God put an estimated value on all the family members by age and sex. And so if we look at it, and this is this is not a reflection of their productivity, this is a reflection of their value in God's sight. And so it shows an answer to the Christian women that work in Greenville that say, well, I submit to my husband, but we're equals. Well, let's read the passage. Leviticus 27 Speak unto, verse 2, speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When a man shall make a singular vow, the persons shall be for the Lord by thy estimation. And the Lord gives the estimation. And thy estimation shall be of the male from 20 years old even unto 60 years old. Even thy estimation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. So a man between the ages of 20 and 60 in God's estimation, is worth 50 shekels of silver. And if it be a female in that same age group, then thy estimation shall be 30 shekels. And if it be from 5 years old, even unto 20 years old, that's a child and youth, teenagers, then thy estimation shall be of the male 20 shekels, and for the female 10 shekels. And if it be from a month old, even unto 5 years old, then thy estimation shall be of the male 5 shekels of silver, and for the female thy estimation shall be 3 shekels of silver. And if it be from 60 years old and above, if it be a male, then thy estimation shall be 15 shekels, and for the female, 10 shekels. There is another passage of Scripture. Now, men, do you remember from men's meeting where I took those just for the men and built a maturity curve? Remember a maturity curve on a graph of how a man increases in value, and then as he gets older, his abilities decline, and so he starts to decline? And we looked at that, and we understand that, and we and we taught about the pillars in a church, and we taught about the princes in a church, and we taught about patriarchs now in a church. Remember? Mm-hmm. We, 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 we drew that from this passage where the Lord puts values on different ages and on different sexes. For right now, it's just another passage of Scripture to add to the total so that we get the mind of the Lord about marriage. How do we get the mind of the Lord? We read everything the Bible has to say about marriage. And so we come up with, in this second category, we add this one too. If this category is the one that I mentioned about disallowing vows and the test of jealousy and so forth. Then the third category was in the book of Proverbs where Solomon warned against odious wives and he described those odious wives as wives who talk too much, they contend too much, they want to argue, they want to fight, and so forth. In Proverbs chapter 30, I'll just make one more reference there. It's, it's in verses 21 through 23 in Proverbs chapter 30. God said that there are four things the world cannot bear. That's why I was making the noises earlier. Oh! Because God says in Proverbs chapter 30 verses 21 through 23, there are four things the world cannot bear. And one of them is an odious woman 
when she's married and some poor man is shackled to this saucy, rebellious, wicked, stubborn, selfish, self-willed, yakking, fighter, arguer, debater. It says that in the Bible. That's the third category. Then the Bible warns us that the woman is the weaker vessel. 1 Peter 3, 7, it'll be next Sunday, but it's going to be in a context of men being considerate of that fact. And it tells us about silly women in 2 Timothy 3, 6, and 7 that they are vulnerable to false teachers. And so we recognize that about women, that they fell in Eden and they still have that same vulnerability to false doctrine and therefore men should protect them. And so from those four categories, we, we derive everything the Bible wants to tell us about the mind of God regarding husband, wife, and marriage. Wives, you may not select the things that you think are reasonable, moderate, convenient, tasteful, appropriate, profitable, enjoyable, easy, wise, or timely in which to submit. That's waiting until your husband wants you to do what you want to do. That isn't subjection. As I've said for many years, that is a vacation when you're only submitting to your husband in things you already want to do. So don't wait and think, well, that's unreasonable. Well, half the time it's probably going to be unreasonable to you. Go ahead and do it anyway. He has to do it on the job. There's a lot of unreasonable things coming out of Washington and coming out of Columbia. And we go ahead and pay our taxes anyway, even though there's a lot of unreasonable and actually wicked things being executed and done in our nation. We rebel and we resist when those things by commandment impact us directly. The fact that other people want to abort in our country, though it is still, as I've said very clearly recently, cold-blooded murder of innocence, that doesn't alter how we submit to authority. We just know that we have wickedness coming out of high places in our country. And when your husband does something wrong or when your husband is not of the same ability as you, listen, I'm going to grant something right now. There are women in our church that are more intelligent than their husbands. When the Bible says the woman is the weaker vessel, it is not saying that all women are less intelligent than their husbands. I preached that in 88. I still believe it now. But it doesn't matter. How many men have gone to work and worked for a man that had a lower IQ than they did? What does that have to do with anything? God isn't impressed. We submit and we obey. And so wives, your husband may have less ability intellectually than you. He may have less verbal ability. He may have less organizational ability. doesn't matter. Submit to him. Make him the head of your house because God already has made him the head of your house. Submit to him as the head of your house. Build him up. Encourage him. The reason he may not have as high of an intellect and may not be as organized and may not be as verbal because you've beaten up on him for the last 20, 40, or 60 years and so he's broken inside. Men get broken. And I'm a defender of broken men. And every woman should want to be a defender of broken men by building up your man. When you resist body language, tossing your head, the look in your eye, some question, some contention, some quarrel, some bringing up some fault on his part, you are breaking down your man. You want to build him up. Encourage him. Comfort him. Tell him how great he is. Praise him. Adore him. Be the cheerleader with the high school quarterback. Thank you. Even though I throw a lot of interceptions. It's so exciting. The real test, ladies, is in times of adversity. The children might be involved. 
Oh, I know that pulls heartstrings, but I want to tell you, your love and devotion, submission and obedience to your husband comes before any of those things or any other things to your children. Your obedience is to your husband. I'll break this thing before I'm done, but Dave Taylor and whoever else helped him did a manly job of it. When you see this purple, then you'll know that it's one. Women, your husband is first. Do not let the children come between you and him. Honor your husband. Remember, older women teach the young women to love their... Who comes first? Love their husbands. Then love their children. In the Garden of Eden, Eve was created to be a helper for the man. She wasn't created as a woman. She wasn't created as a mother to start with. She wasn't created as a mother to start with. She was created as a wife. The real test is in times of adversity when the children are involved, he's made a mistake, you're not feeling the best, he's failing in his duties, but that's when you submit. We, we all have to do that in all spheres of authority. And so be looking for those opportunities when he asks you something that's a little onerous, when he hasn't been very kind to you recently, when you're a little tired, when the children are involved. Show whose side you are on. God's and your husband's not your children. Peter's commandment in 1 Peter chapter 3 of a woman to subject herself the way that I'm preaching to an unconverted husband. That is a powerful statement in and of itself in verse 1. We're going to go back and look at it soon. To, to look at that verse and realize this subjection, this submission that God is expecting from a wife to her husband, he's an unbeliever. He doesn't even believe in God. He's not even a Christian. He could be an unconverted Jew. These were mostly Jews written to in 1 Peter. He could be an unconverted pagan, an idolater. True, in 1 Corinthians 7, where it says, if the unbelieving husband still wants to be your husband, then you can you keep that marriage and you preserve that marriage. God's called us to peace, even though he's a pagan, in probably one of the worst cities in the world at that time. It was Corinth. It was like our Vegas. It was like our San Francisco, our Key West, or our Asheville. That is powerful. So when you start thinking, well, he, if my husband loved me, I've heard, I've heard this so many times in my life. If my husband would love me more, I'd submit to him better. Hello? What in the world are you talking about? Should your children gather in the bedroom and close the door and say, you know, if our parents were nicer to us, we'd obey them. But forget it. We're not going to obey them. That doesn't make any sense. God doesn't care what your husband does until he is trying to force you to sin. Just like what goes on in Washington, Columbia, or Greenville, that is sin, we let it go in the hands of God. We try to vote against it. We pray against it. We petition against it. We may even contribute against it. But it doesn't affect us yet. When they try to tell us we cannot do what God wants us to do, or when they try to tell us to do something God does not want us to do, then we will draw a line in the sand and not do it. And a wife should only draw a line in the sand when it gets to that point. If he's of lesser ability, if he's of lesser character, if he's failing in his life, she should still obey him. There is no mitigation at all of her responsibility toward him. If my husband would love me more, I'd submit better. That isn't what the Bible teaches anywhere in any sphere of authority. If you would submit better, your husband would probably love you more. 
Can I prove that from a Bible? He that keepeth the fig tree shall eat the fruit thereof. You say, well, I haven't been getting much fruit from the fig tree recently. Well, you must not be keeping the fig tree well enough. 1 Peter 3 says that a woman, by subjecting herself to her unconverted pagan husband, has the possibility of not only having a better husband implied, but converting him to the gospel of Jesus Christ without ever opening her mouth for a word to preach at him, just by living submissively and chastely as his wife. Powerful. But if I submit like you're preaching, he'll run all over me. You don't trust the Bible or God. But I have to stand up for my rights. That's rebellion. Should your children do the same thing to you? It takes two to fight, women. If you'll submit, you can pacify an angry spirit of a husband. When a husband is angry at you because you've been a little bit insubmissive, that's totally appropriate. There's nothing wrong with anger, as long as it's dealt with scripturally. Didn't the men of Persia have this counsel? Didn't, maybe I've said this already once. I've said it so many times in the last 48 hours to different people. Memucan reasoned, Ahasuerus, if we let, allow this precedent to stand, there is going to be contempt and wrath in the homes of Persia. The wives are going to have contempt toward their husbands because Vashti has given them such a horrible example. Where's the wrath going to come from? The husbands for having wives showing them contempt. And we're going to have husbands and wives against each other throughout the empire. We do not want that. There needs to be a precedent set. Put that woman over in the house of the concubines and never see her again and bring a woman in that is better than she. And send a letter to the people and tell them, let every man rule in his house. Beautiful stuff. Beautiful stuff. It's amazing to hear women complain about fetching things. What if your husband is sitting watching a football game and he says, would you bring me a, a cold Coke? I've heard women complain. What does he think I am? His gopher? Listen, folks. If the CFO asked me, would you go get me a cup of coffee? I consider it a privilege. I was going to get it faster and better than anyone else. I told him for the years that I worked for him, when you want me out in the parking lot with a hose and a bucket and a sponge, I'll wash your car. And he knew I meant it. Come on! If you're running back for a football team and the coach tells you that he wants you to return punts from now on, returning punts is highly dangerous. And it's a difficult job. What do you say? You go do it. Come on, women. And I, I don't believe that this is true of very many in here, and I hope it's not true of any after today. But it's amazing to hear women complain about fetching things. They ask the children to go fetch things. Well, I'm not a child. No, you're a wife. Don't push me too far on that one. By looking at everything the Bible has to say about authority. And when we're on the job, men and women have to do it for their bosses. Dress standards. You know, a husband should be able to tell his wife what he wants her to wear and how he wants her to wear it. Come on. He knows better what you look like and what is sinful and immoral and immodest than you do. Meal preparation. You should be fixing what he likes. Children's rules. He's the head of your home. He's the head of the children. God holds the father responsible for the children more than he does you. Your work activities, how money is spent, your body weight. If your husband asks you to lose weight, what do you think you ought to do? If your husband wants you to change your hair, 
What do you think you ought to do? It shouldn't even be a question. It should be how much, how long, how would you like it fixed? Submission without the right attitude is not submission that pleases God. Even on the job, we're to serve not for eye service, not as men pleasers, but as unto the Lord with a fervent heart. And a wife should do it the same way. First Peter 3 is going to show us that. But I did what he wanted, didn't I? That isn't submission. That's rebellion. We don't care that you did what he wanted. The Lord knows that, and the Lord applies it from top down. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. Do you think that you, do you think that by giving 10%, 12%, or 15% and doing it grudgingly that God's going to reward you? Not a chance. God loves a cheerful giver. God expects us to serve Him with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. And a wife should serve cheerfully and zealously and fervently from her heart just like her husband does on the job to his boss because the Bible requires it in both places. Passive rebellion is still rebellion. When your husband asks you a question, you should answer him. There's a verse in the Bible about not answering. A servant, though he be corrected, will not answer. A wicked servant that needs to be beat. I'm talking about servants under the Old Testament. Doesn't answer. He's confronted about a particular situation in the workplace and he won't answer. Sullen, rebellious, call it passive rebellion, whatever you want to. Do you know what the verse is teaching? Beat them. Because they will not answer just from a verbal correction. Don't you do that to your husbands. You're going to end up with children that won't tell you what's going on in their lives. When your husband asks about what's going on, or when he, when you know that he would like to know what's going on in your life, tell him. You know, we spank children for pouting, head tossing, debating, slamming doors, yelling, joking, complaining, nagging, ignoring, avoiding, stomping, and crying. Wives shouldn't do that. They're acting like children. I'm not saying that any of you are doing that. I hope that uh, you're not. I just want to go through this and give you some little practical reminders that you're acting like a child when you pout. Does God take notice of things like these? When we roll our eyes at our parents, does God take notice? If a wife rolls her eyes at her husband, does God take notice? You don't have a right to do that. That is sin. That is rebellion. What does God say He's going to do to a teenager that does that to parents? He's going to send eagles to eat that eyeball out of that teenager. That's what he says. It's Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 17. It isn't preached very much on YouTube. But it's there in the Bible. Don't ever set light about your husband. Don't tell jokes about your husband. What does the Bible say about somebody that sets light about their parents in Deuteronomy 27 verse 16? Curse them. Cursed. Put to death. For making light of parents. Don't make light of your husband. It's an office from God. We don't want to make light of any offices of authority that God's given. What happened to 42 little children that wanted to make fun of a man in an office of the ministry? Two two she-bears came out of the woods and tore them. What happened to Korah for thinking that Moses took a little too much on him? A new thing. Uh, Moses, I want to show a new thing to the nation of Israel that I've never shown them before. Stand back and I'll open up the earth and swallow those wicked men. God is serious about authority. Right. Women, let's be serious about it. Let's, let's love the opportunity we have to be a daughter of Sarah. Some say, I can't submit when I don't respect him. Well, that's two sins. 
The fact that you don't respect him is a sin. You have to respect. He hasn't earned my respect. He doesn't have to earn your respect. God gave him his respect by putting him in that office. God gave him that respect by when he was conceived, he was a male. That is an irrelevant argument. That is a rebellious argument. That is a sinful argument. That is a wicked argument. You may not respect your boss. You may not respect a customer that you are serving. You may not respect our president in some ways. You should respect him. Honor to whom honor is due. It's a command from the office. Don't let those things roll up in your head. Don't let them come out of your mouth. That is ungodly, wicked, devilish reasoning. I don't submit to him because I don't respect him. God doesn't care if you respect him. He orders you to respect him. He orders you to reverence Him. And He orders you to obey Him. All those things are commandments. And it's true of all five spheres of authority. Husbands don't have to earn your respect to get submission. God demands both from you. That you respect Him and that you submit. You know the word fear. Let's look at Leviticus. Since you're back there in Leviticus, it's convenient. Look at Leviticus 19. Fear. People think the word fear is a bad word. It's only a bad word for two reasons. They don't understand the Bible word fear or they're rebellious. The Bible word fear means a reverential desire to please. When we fear God, it's a reverential desire to please Him. But look what it... I want you to notice, because we're going to run into fear in 1 Peter 3. I want you to notice in Leviticus 19, in verse 3, Ye shall fear every man his mother. Wow. Really? I'm supposed to fear my mother? I wish I had my mother back. It's a shame that there's any growth in character or conviction in the 50s. But I'd show her more fear. Because Leviticus 19.3 says it. So, if you ask, do you think about your mother when her birthday was two days ago? Do you miss her? She's in a better place without me or my father or my brother or my sister. But if I could have her back, I'd show her more fear. I was a problem teenager. I'd show her more fear. It says, fear your mother. Ye shall fear every man his mother. I am the Lord your God. Right. Tuesday I'll get my mother-in-law back. God knows I'm making up with my mother-in-law for my mother. But it's not making up anything. It's just giving God what He expects and desires and deserves. And it's a pleasure. I'm having a blast at blowing her away and hoping that my father-in-law is able to see and know that I'm keeping the oath that I made to him of how I would take care of her. And I am nothing. I am nothing. I am refuse saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all this conversation about me and my mother right now is to take a little bit of pressure off you for a moment and to remind you that when it says that a wife should fear her husband, it is a good choice of words. Fear is a good thing when that fear is reverential desire to please and honor. 
And it's in the word reverence. Let's go to 1 Peter 3. I'm sorry for my time management. I knew it was going to be a problem. I'm trusting the Lord that he can make something out of these poor fishes and loaves that are in this little bag that you will get enough to go home and think about and be convicted to be a better wife. Let me just read through these verses and give the sense of the words. There's 12 pages, single space, that you'll find on the Internet in the next 24 hours for these six verses. You may also go and look at the 12 pages from 1988 that start out with two good sermons about subjection if you want to hear some of these things again and think through them and and be blessed by the Lord. The, the preaching of God's Word, and it doesn't have anything to do with me. I don't Anybody that preaches the Word of God faithfully, it's a great thing to listen to. It's a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a blessing. It's a privilege. There's no better... There's no better use of your time. There's no, there's nothing that gratifies the soul more. You know, last night, children, it's nice having you in your own homes. Love seat in front of the fireplace, worked hard all day so that I could quit at a certain time and have a couple, three hours with my wife there, listening to Scorby with my arm around her and her snacking listening to the Word of God and listening to sermons from our website and getting excited about the facets of salvation. I've tried lots of things in my life and I, to have a husband and a wife sharing God together and sharing the doctrine of salvation together. It's just wonderful. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Just because there are other husbands in the world, you are not subject to them and you shouldn't even be thinking about them. God's given you your husband, and he's given it in his providence. You say, well, I picked him. No, you didn't. God arranged all the circumstances in your life that led to that particular marriage taking place. Submit yourself to that man. That, here's one of the reasons. That, if any obey not the word, if any of those husbands are not converted, they also may without the word, that is without preaching to them or leaving them tracks in their lunch when you send them off to work, be won by the conversation of the wives. They can be converted. This is powerful evangelism by your life. Doesn't it say in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, let your light so shine before men that others may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Powerful. You say, well, I thought that there was election and regeneration that had to be involved in a person being converted. There is. But God in His providence arranges all the marriages that take place. God knows your husband better than you do. Even if he's an unconverted man right now. These were women that were converted when their husbands were not converted. This passage does not allow Christians to marry those who are not Christians. This just deals with those who were already married to a pagan because they were pagans or they were unbelieving Jews and the gospel came along and only the woman was converted. This does not justify Ming... Mixed marriages, we still marry only in the Lord. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. While they behold the things that they're watching. When in the close relationship of a husband and a wife, they've both been pagans, they've both been Jews, all of a sudden the gospel comes along and this woman is going to these assemblies a few times a week and she gets baptized. That Jewish husband is going to be hearing about Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. 
Bonk. I don't believe a bit of that. That's garbage. If he's a pagan, I still believe in Diana of the Ephesians. And she's going off and being baptized. Do you know what happens? It happens, what, what, the same thing happens on the job or in school when others find out that you are a Christian. They scrutinize your life. So it says, while they behold, because this husband, so, you think you found the true religion? Inside. I wonder what it's going to do to our bedroom. I wonder what it's going to do to her work ethic. I wonder what it's going to do to her reverence toward me since I don't believe that religion. I think it's a bunch of hogwash. Do you follow that? That is going through his mind and he is scrutinizing that wife. What an opportunity. While they behold your chaste conversation. Conversation means manner of life or lifestyle. Chaste, holy, sexually pure, not lascivious, faithful to a man. This is a one-man woman living it out fully. By the, by the coupled with the fear she has of her husband and the fear she has of God. This is a powerful testimony to pagans that didn't have the same level of morality as Christianity does. Here is a faithful woman that shows by her submission to her husband, that was verse 1, and by her purity and sexual loyalty and devotion to her man, she can win him without the word. Because he's watching, everything is getting better. The meals are getting better. Her spirit is better. She treats me better. She honors me better. She's better in the bedroom. She's more faithful. Someday he says to her, tell me a little bit more about your God. Because something's changed you. You're the best wife I've ever had. And I've, I've made fun of your religion for the last two years. Tell me about your religion. Then she gets to talk. Until then, she doesn't need to. Verse 3. Who's adorning? Women have always wanted to adorn themselves from the beginning because God put in Adam and Eve quite a degree of knowledge about the two sexes and men are turned on by the attractiveness of a woman. So women have always been about the business of adorning themselves. And so they have invented every conceivable thing. And Wednesday night may be an interesting study from Isaiah 3, 16 through 24. I've had part of it in my notes for 25 years, and I've never preached it that I can recall in detail. And maybe we'll do that. They, they've worked on their hair. They've worked on hats. They've worked on veils. They've done all kinds of things. They've got their wimples. They've got their crisping pins. You think you got a curling iron and you got something on somebody from 4,000 years ago? They were called... Crisping pins. They curled their hair back. They knew all about taking care of their hair, taking care of their face. They all knew about makeup. They knew about clothes. They knew about jewelry. They knew about earrings. They knew about ankle bracelets. You don't, there's, no, there's no girl today that has anything on what they had 4,000 years ago. But what, what the lesson here is, and the lesson is not modesty in avoiding sexual attraction of others. That is not the lesson here. That lesson is elsewhere in the Bible. I'll get some of that on Wednesday evening, possibly. The lesson here is verses 3 and 4 are set in opposition to each other, contrasting with each other like Solomon's Proverbs, when there's a but in the middle. See, there's a but that starts verse 4. Verses 1 and 2 were the order of subjection and how weighty it can be even for the conversion of an unbelieving husband. Verses 3 and 4 are setting a woman's priorities 
that her heart and spirit are more important than her outward appearance. Who's adorning? This woman, this woman that wants to be a daughter of Sarah, this woman, her adorning is not emphasizing the outward woman. It doesn't mean she can't do her hair. It doesn't mean she can't ever wear jewelry because it also says she's not to put on apparel. But we know that a woman is to cover her nakedness in public. So we know that this is one of those relative statements of Scripture. The Bible is filled with these. And this is how we rightly divide the word of truth. The Bible says, take no thought for the morrow in Matthew 6.25 and Matthew 6.34. Does that mean we should take no thought for the morrow? Or does that mean we should take no certain kinds of thought for tomorrow? We should not make worrying about tomorrow a fearful thing to us because we trust in God. This is setting a, it's changing the priorities of a woman. Most women by nature think they have to look good to win a man, look good to please a man, look good to keep a man, and so they put a lot of emphasis on their hair, their makeup, cosmetic surgery nowadays, and their clothes they spend for these expensive wardrobes. And the Lord is saying, that is not the key. That does not make a daughter of Sarah. Sarah, that does not win a man. That does not please me. The adorning that I'm looking for is on the inside. So it says in verse 3, Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning. Outward is a key word of plating the hair, that is to braid it, and of wearing of gold, those are accessories, or of putting on of apparel. Don't let the emphasis, don't let the priority be on those outward things. But, in contrast, let it be the hidden man of the heart. Every woman has a hidden woman. She is hidden because she can't be seen in a mirror. She is hidden because she can't be seen directly with the eyes. Let it be the hidden man of the heart. This is not the new man. This is the woman's spirit. This is the meek and quiet spirit that the verse is going to explain in just a couple phrases. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible. If you, if you, when your husband, if you think that being a good wife is looking good, that is all going to disappear. It doesn't matter what makeup you put on a dried prune. It doesn't matter what wrapping paper you put around a dried prune. I'm not... Listen. Both sexes degenerate with sin as we approach death. I'm not picking on women. I'm just telling you, God is giving you a secret. God is giving you a secret of how to please Him and how to please men by getting your priorities right. There is a hidden woman throughout this, there are hidden women throughout this congregation. In nearly every pew, there's a hidden woman, and I can't see them directly. And the men sitting around them can't see them directly. But it's that woman you want to cultivate. And husbands, it's that woman you want to cultivate. Husbands and and fathers of daughters, it's that woman that you want to get a hold of. Forget her outside. Get a hold of that woman on the inside. That is what is important, but let it be. The adorning of a woman, the beautifying of a woman, is the hidden man of the heart. Now it uses the word man, but it's talking about her spirit inside her. It's a female thing. It's what you women have. In that which is not corruptible, it doesn't get old, it doesn't decay, it doesn't get ugly. Even the ornament, because it's talking about adorning, and you adorn yourself by putting ornaments on, Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. If a woman wants to be beautiful, she starts working on this thing inside. 
And guys, if you're going to marry a good woman, the thing that's most important to you is this thing inside. Does it love Jesus Christ? Does it fear God? Does it want to live a holy and virtuous life to glorify God? You want to go after the hidden woman. You know, by nature, bang, she's beautiful. Oh, how do you know? You haven't found out her hidden woman yet. You need to go find out about her hidden woman. Let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible. Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. Meek is submissive. Meek is not offended when being put upon by those in authority. Moses was the meekest man in the face of the earth. It doesn't mean weakness. It means humility and submissiveness. And a quiet spirit, one that doesn't want to talk back, that doesn't want to argue, that doesn't want to complain, that doesn't want to question. The ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. When there's that meek and quiet spirit, you've got a beautiful woman. It's, it's the adorning that counts in the sight of God and men and can convert even unconverted men. When there is a spirit radiating. And you know, girls, the better your spirit is, it shines through. You know, this hidden, it, it's called hidden man. But uh, with a little conversation, a little observation, your hidden men are all exposed. Because we hear through the ears a quantity of words, saucy words, haughty words, contentious words, striving words, words about themselves, boasting words, pompous words, sarcastic words. And you know what we know? Your hidden man is ugly. Then we look. You know, we see the body language of dis- disrespect to your husband. We see slothful characters. We see putting all the emphasis on the external. You know, running all the time, going to the gym all the time, worrying about your hair, worrying about your clothes, worrying about your shoes. Oh, come on. Why don't you work on what counts? See, we can see it and we can hear it. Lord, help every woman to get captivated by this fourth verse that says there's a hidden woman inside and it's the real adornment of beauty. It is so powerful, it can convert unconverted men that never hear a sermon or read a tract. It is so powerful and weighty, God says, it is of great price in my sight. And we have some in this church. And God loves you, and you deserve that epitaph. I want more. He wants more. I want to help my wife be better. I want all of you to help your wives be better. Those two little girls you have sitting there, there's a little hidden man inside of both of them, and that needs to be cultivated the most. Not their education, not their attire, not their physical activity, not their entertainment, that they love Jesus Christ supremely above all else. It will shine through your eyes It reflects on a glowing face. A smile looks different on a woman that has that spirit than on a woman who's just smiling the plastic smile of the world. It is a wonderful thing. It is a secret in God's Word for a girl's beauty. Get rid of your opinions. Get rid of your mouth. Get rid of your words. Cut your words in half if you're a talkative girl. And go to work on this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is the hidden man of the heart. It is not corruptible. A woman can get better and better and better.
in the sight of God of great price. Ladies, when the Bible says, wives, this is of great price in the sight of God, does it excite you? Cultivate that. And what is this meek and quiet spirit? It's the spirit of wanting to be in subjection and reverence your husband, of wanting to put him up and obey him. For after this manner, what manner? When it says this manner, that's a demonstrative adjective, meaning that the word manner is appealing to something that has just been presented. For after this manner, this description of a woman emphasizing her spirit of subjection and obedience and honor and reverence to her husband over her outward appearance, she has her priorities right. After this manner, in the old time, the holy women also adorned themselves. The holy women in the Old Testament, did exactly what Peter is teaching here in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 4. For after this manner, in the Old Time, that's the Old Testament, the holy women. A holy woman is not a nun. A holy woman in this context is not one who reads and prays all the time. Though a good woman is going to read her Bible and pray for her husband, in this context, a holy woman is one who is chaste. She is sexually pure. She is devoted. She is a one-man woman. She loves him. She honors him. She serves him. She helps him. She praises him. She does all the things that the Bible has told us should be done. The holy women, they did it in the Old Testament. God's great women that he calls holy women, they did it also. That word also means they did this. This manner means they did exactly what I'm telling you. And you sisters in 2014 sitting in this congregation can be like them. If you'll do it the way they did it. And they did it the way that Peter taught it right here. It says who trusted in God. You know, they, they were, they were God-fearing women. They were God-fearing women. It's because of their trust in God that they could submit themselves to a man, though he might be of inferior ability, though he might have failures and faults and sins in his life. They could do it because they had trust in God. So you want to find that trust in God. And ladies, you want to develop that trust in God so that you are easy, it's easy for you to submit to a man because of your trust in him. Being in subjection unto their own husband. See how it's all tied together by bringing back that word subjection? The, the whole five verses are pulled back together. The adorning is a meek and quiet spirit. The Old Testament women did it. They trusted in God and they were subject to their husbands. They surrendered to him. And so they were the fulfillment of what Peter's preaching here. Verses 1 and 2 are the commandment to do it. Verses 3 and 4 are the priorities that a woman ought to have of the internal over the external. Women are so committed with money, time, effort, conscious, mirrors, hair, frosting, makeup, surgery, clothes, exercise, time, and hours spent when a little bit of time there, there's bodily exercise profiteth little, there's a lot of profit and of great price right here to have that perfect heart. That from the heart you love your man. From the heart you are going to serve him. From the heart you are going to reverence him. From the heart I know why God created me. It's for him. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to love him. I'm going to reverence him. I'm going to make him great. I will lose my life for him. And the Lord shouts, I love you, daughter, from heaven. Verse 6, even as Abraham, even as Sarah, excuse me, even as, even as means in this precise way of that plural holy women of verse 5, there is one example I want to call out. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham. 
And Sarah did obey Abraham. You know, I know that you know some things about Sarah. I know those things about Sarah too. But look what God says about Sarah. Because overall, what a woman. She wanted around with him. She left everything to go with him. You know, when, when her only boy was 16 years old, do you know what her husband wanted to do to her only boy? Burn him on an altar. How's that for a good woman? Did she run away with him? Did she kill herself in grief? It says in verse 5 that she trusted in God. And God did take care of that, didn't he? Amen. If he said, we're going down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land, she went to Egypt. We're going to live among the Philistines for a while, called Gerar. She lived among the Philistines, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham. And then there's an example of her reverence. She called Abraham Lord. Do you know when and how and what the context was for Sarah calling Abraham Lord? It's Genesis chapter 18. I'll remind you, God visited Abraham. Abraham knew that he had divine visitors with him. And he ran into that tent and he said, Sarah, I have some important guests and you fix a meal as fast as you can. And if you read the context there, it is one. She had to go out to the flock, the herd, kill a creature, bleed it, skin it, do everything that has to be done to it. And she cooked it and put together the accoutrements for that meal. And she served the Lord and his angels along with Abraham. See, she obeyed. You know, why don't you fix it? Have you ever heard these words or heard about these words? Why don't you fix it? If you want a meal right now in the middle of the day, you fix it. Sarah fixed it. The Lord said, where's Sarah? While they were eating. Abraham said she's in the tent. Well, Abraham, I'm going to come back about this time in a year, the time of life, and Sarah's going to give you a son. Sarah burst into laughter in the tent, hearing that God was going to give her a son. She had been reproductively dead for a long time, and Abraham had been reproductively dead for a long time. And so she laughs, and in her heart she says, Is my Lord going to have pleasure again? In her thoughts. She's talking about Abraham. You know, are my Lord and I going to get at it again? You know, we're old. I'm 90 and he's 100. We, we don't exactly act like teenagers anymore. Um, is my Lord going to have pleasure again? See, Lord is not a term of respect. When you go into a court and you're before a judge, you address him as your honor. This Lord was not a term of respect to be used in public for some courtesy or decorum in her heart. This is one of the one-word arguments in the Bible because it's a New Testament writer using an Old Testament word and appealing to that one word as a real sign of reverence even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well. You know, this woman gets pulled forward. How important is Sarah? Her name was changed from Sarai to Sarah by God because Sarah means princess, and she was to be a mother of nations and of kings of nations. It says that in Genesis chapter 17, God changed her name. Abraham was the father of the faithful. Sarah was the mother of the faithful. 
Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel and the church of God. Sarah was his wife. Sarah was a great woman. From Sarah's womb came Isaac, came Jacob, came Judah and the others for the whole nation of Israel. She was a great woman. Women, ladies, sisters, you can be like Sarah, whose daughters ye are. In character and in virtue, you can be like Sarah. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, that if we love our enemies, ye may be the children of God. That's why we love our enemies, because it shows us the same as God in character, because He loves His enemies in His actions. And a woman can be the daughter of Sarah. Thus, the epitaph, a daughter of Sarah, a princess, and diamond with God. As as long as you do well, that's being in subjection and reverencing your husband like the Bible teaches and are not afraid with any amazement. There is fear, the fear of a husband going to the place of causing bewilderment or overwhelming of your mind to where you do not know what to do. That's what amazement means. We've taught this for 30 years because I ran into it as a single-digit child and I ran into it my first two years here in Greenville about a family that wouldn't attend this church and I've already told you that long story. Because we believed that a wife should disobey her husband when her husband is requiring her to do something that is wrong. I sat in that living room and I said, uh, wife, listen, if I was to hand you a gun right now and your husband said to shoot me, what would you do? You know, she didn't want to answer when it's put that way. But what they believe is she should shoot me and she will not be held accountable because she's obeying her husband who told her to shoot me. If you go to Amazon and type in, in quotation marks, me, comma, obey him, question mark, that's the title of the book. Uh, it's interesting to read the reader's comments about such a ridiculous heresy. I had fun reading it yesterday. One, one of the comments went something like this. I have read your book, and I am putting it into practice. My husband said, burn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's heresy. And see, it's heresy. Who's who's one of our favorite women in the Old Testament that knew when to disobey her husband? Abigail. We have little girls in this church named Abigail. Because she knew that God was more important. The apostles taught us that we ought to obey God rather than man. So right here when it says that are not afraid with any amazement, that's getting so fearful of your husband that you enter into a state of amazement, which means to be bewildered or overwhelmed and not knowing what is right or wrong. And we don't believe that kind of fear. The fear of God is first. The fear of your husband is second. And if your husband ever tries to contradict what God has told you to do or not to do, you obey God rather than man. When else has that been taught in this church? Can you remember a sermon that's been preached twice, once recently, when your husband's a fool? The whole purpose of that was to explain that in great detail from the Bible. This is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6. through 6. Sisters, look forward to serving your husband. You're going to go out of this place in a few minutes. You're going to have this week. You're going to have the rest of today. You're going to have tomorrow. How will you obey your husband? How will you subject yourself to him? How will you reverence him? What changes will you make? The Word of God has been presented... What changes will you make to be better than you were when you arrived several hours ago? This is what the Lord expects of us. You've heard it. 
next Sunday, it's going to be verse 7, and it's for husbands. And we'll hear it. We already heard chapter 2. Now we're going to have to get it in verse 7 again. Ladies, go home and be the daughters of Sarah. Be the diamonds that are of great price, far above rubies. Be the princess, as Sarah means, by obeying your husbands, being in subjection to them, adorning yourself inwardly by taking care of that hidden woman that's inside of you, that spirit, that heart. It's called the heart. In verse 4, and it's called the meek and quiet spirit. That is of great price. That can change your life. That can win husbands. That glorifies God. That adorns the gospel. That shuts the mouths of gainsayers. Amen. Amen.